The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the program today Dervla McTiernan. She joins us on the phone in Los Angeles. So welcome to the show, Dervla. Thanks so much for having me, Vic. Dervla, you are in the States on book tour, uh, I think a, a quick, short book tour for your new novel, The Murder Rule, which I believe is officially coming out tomorrow as we're recording this. Yes, that's exactly right. And this is my very first American tour, so I am very excited to be here. I'll bet you are. I, I looked you up, and I, I see you published your first book, what, in 2018? Yes. And this is your fourth book? This is my fourth. My first three were part of a series, which were set in Ireland. Uh -huh. But this is my first American standalone. Okay. Well, I went back last year when uh, The Good Turn came out, and I read that. I didn't read the two previous oh, wow. books. But but I, I absolutely love The Good Turn, and, and that was set in Ireland. I understand that you are originally from Ireland. Yes. Oh, thanks for reading, Vic. Um, yes, I'm from Galway in the west of Ireland, um, though I live now in the west of Australia in Perth. Um, we emigrated in 2011. Um, but the first three books were all set in Galway, which is a city I know very well. And in that one... You have this uh, police officer who's been kind of banished to this small town where his father is the police chief, and he starts snooping around a little bit, and uh, he, he discovers something that he thinks might have been a murder, and, and uh, his dad doesn't want him to do that, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of discomfort between the father and the son. I, I love that story. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you so much for reading it. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was a book that meant a lot to me, so... Happy to hear that. So after reading that, when I opened up the murder rule, I thought, okay, we're going to go back to Ireland. Man, was I in for a surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a different book. Did you find it was very different in, in tone? Not in tone. I think it's just as clever and, and as devilish plotting as in the previous book that I read. But uh, no, I think it's – I love the story. And, and okay. if I didn't know – that you were not an American, I would guess that you were an American writing this story because it just really feels American. It's set mostly in Virginia. That is quite a compliment. I, I Look, I mean, I've spent a couple of summers working and living here, but that is not the same thing as being an American, obviously. I worked really hard to try to make sure that I got the language right, not just words that are used differently. I mean, some of them are really obvious, like trash or rubbish or yard and garden, things mm. like that. It's more to do with um, the rhythm of the language, I think. One of the things that's very peculiar to Irish people is because we had our own language, have our own language, which is called Gwilga, and we, there's a, a sentence structure in Irish, in the Irish language that we kind of take over to English. And so there's a certain way we speak and, and a certain way we frame things and it, I had to be really careful not to fall back into that when I was writing this book and to try to keep it very strictly American. But look, I did have help from my editors. You know, uh -huh. it was a little bit of language, but also things like uh, my editor from New York rang me up and she said, Derva, we do not just invite people into our homes. <laughs> that just uh -huh. wouldn't happen. It's got way too many people inviting people into their houses in this book. 
Um, so it was really helpful to have that input as well. It made a huge difference. Can you give us a little example of that kind of different cadence that you're talking about with the way the Irish speak? I think it's, it's um, oh God, I'm really going to struggle to put, it, to put a sentence together now. I, I think there's a gentleness about it and a roundabout nature of it. So, um, and, we, and we say things twice sometimes. So have you seen that, have you? Oh. You know, did you go up there, did you? There's this additional bit that's left on it. And then simpler things, I mean, the, the line in, in Irish, for example, if you say you're hungry, you say you have hunger. Now, we don't, we don't translate that directly to the English, but there are still some things that are peculiar. And now, of course, I'm struggling to think of good examples for you, but um, give me 10 minutes. Oh, those are great. <laughs> and I'll think of something. <laughs> that, that was very informative. My guest is Dervil McTiernan. Her new one is The Murder Rule. I understand you have a background in the law, that you were a, a solicitor, or, or as we would say, an attorney mm-hmm. in, in Ireland. And, and um, this, while I wouldn't call it a legal thriller, there are a lot of elements of the law in this. How did you get the idea for the story? Well, it was inspired by an article I read quite a few years ago about a young Irish law student who went to the States and she spent a summer volunteering for the Innocence Project here. And then she went back to Ireland and she couldn't quite let go of the case she'd been working, so she kept working it. And she ultimately tracked down a retired police officer who pointed her to some evidence that had been hidden in the original case. And so with the benefit of this evidence, this man was freed from prison. And I just found this hugely inspirational, obviously, but I didn't really think it was a story because I kind of felt that story had been told already. And it was only a couple of years later, I came across the article again and I kind of dug into it a bit more and what I learned is that after this young student found the evidence, it took another five years just because of the usual bureaucracy for his case to be heard. And he was free from prison, but he'd been in prison 26 years at that stage and had only three years left to run his original sentence, which was so sad, you know, and so much more complicated than the original story. And I, I kept thinking, you know, why did we get the really clean version first? Was it because the editors of the various newspapers thought it was a more inspirational take? And then my dark and twisted mind started thinking, well, what if the Innocence Project had some sophisticated PR team that was putting out this this cleaner, happier take? And then I started thinking, well, if they had done that, and I had no reason to think they had, except that I was imagining it in my head, but if they had done that, would I condemn them for it? And the honest answer is I would not because... You know, they're trying to do something that is so important in a world that just doesn't care, or at least doesn't care as much as it should. And I was wondering, if you're in that position, would you take a small step over the truly correct path in order to be effective? And once you've taken that small step, would you take another one? And then would you take another one? And then I thought, okay, I think I've got a story here to write. Your um, central character is a, a young woman named Hannah Rokeby. D- tell us about her. So Hannah is this young idealistic law student, and she joins the Innocence Project as they're trying to fight this case to free a man called Michael Dandridge from prison. And they are all passionately behind this case, and Hannah seems to be the right fit for them. You know, she's really bright, really clever. She strikes you as someone who's really eager to please and someone who wants to change the world for the better. But actually, if you scrape the surface, that's not Hannah at all. She's a lot darker than that. She's she's quite ruthless, um, and she's definitely working to further her own agenda. On the cover, 
of the uh, U.S. edition. It's got a little line underneath the title, and it says, no one is innocent in this story. And mm. I thought, well, that's not a spoiler, is it? And then I read the book, and I thought, no, it really isn't a spoiler, but you do a wonderful job of tricking us and, and not letting us figure out what the heck is going on for the longest time. And I'm a little paranoid about giving away too much about this story because I want listeners and readers to be able to discover the, the beauty of it on their own. But can, can we talk about the diary? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The diary is Laura's diary. So we, we learn very early in the book, so I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, that you know Hannah is there for her own reasons. She's joined the University of Virginia Innocence Project team, but she's not really on their side. And what we don't really know is what's driving her. Um, but we do know that she has a diary that she found that her mother wrote when her mother was young in her in her 20s and she was living in Bar Harbor and working um, as a chambermaid and barely hanging on, you know, by the skin of her teeth, hanging on to, to survival and to having enough money to pay for a roof over her head. Um, and so Hannah discovered this diary when she was 15 years old and it, the diary covers about two weeks in her mother's life um, at this pivotal point in her life when she falls in love and suffers a terrible trauma and the diary of course has an enormous impact on Hannah um, and I really wanted it to feel almost notebook-esque in its romance you know mm. so that it would be something that would be very that would be very dramatic for a, a young girl and that would be really impactful for her so those diary entries are kind of spread throughout the book. Yes you want uh, you intersperse those and uh, whet our appetites for what Hannah is going to be up to next, and, and uh, Hannah is a very intelligent young woman, and she's willing to do almost anything to further her, as you put it, agenda. Mm -hmm. But as the story goes on, and she gets deeper into the situations that she's found, she starts having some doubts about what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, it's such a journey for Hannah. I mean, I wanted her to be, at the beginning of the book, a couple of different things. Ruthless, for one, but also to have this deep confidence in her own abilities because it was something I really lacked as a young woman, as a young lawyer. And mm. um, Hannah just knows what she's good at, not in an arrogant way. She just knows what she's good at. And then the problem for Hannah is that, that self-knowledge is combined with this sort of conviction that she's right and that is that conviction is in her bones and you know she almost has to believe that because it's the only way her whole world makes sense but if you combine those two things it can lead to some serious mistakes because she just goes after things and, and pursues stuff and only as the book unfolds and, and some of that confidence is chipped away she has to really figure out who she really is because you know many people in her situation would refuse to see the evidence that contradicts their set of beliefs mm -hmm. and the test for hannah is is she going to be the kind of person who can see where she's gone wrong and adjust or is she going to be the kind of person who just refuses to see what she doesn't want to see that that's really the question for her she's a bulldozer she she's a bit of a bulldozer yeah she's determined <laughs> yeah. to go and, and she gets into the Innocence Project sheerly by determination. There's no way that she could have possibly done this, really, but she's able to do it. And it's a, a case of 
sort of a, of a forged identity in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we hear about these people that are con artists that are so good at pretending that they are some famous person's relative or something, and, and they end up getting caught eventually. She is able to deceive these really intelligent people to get into the Innocence Project. And then when she gets in there, as readers, we're, we're saying to ourselves, okay, well, whatever it is she's trying to accomplish, what if she actually does it? What will that be? Well, of course, mm-hmm. we can't talk about that. But <laughs> as she gets deeper into the story and we meet these other characters, and then we find out a little bit more about her mother. Wow, you just you had a lot of fun with this, didn't you? <laughs> I did. Oh, I really did. But it was tough. There were certain points where I struggled. I'll tell you, the Laura chapters, particularly the diary entries, I really had a hard time with because I think there's always a risk when you write a book where there's a sort of a dual timeline, which this is to a degree. I mean, the Laura entries are shorter. There are fewer of them than Hannah's, but they're there. And I think you always run the risk that the reader will really enjoy one timeline and be bored senseless by the other one. We've all had a book like that, right? And then you're just flicking through the pages really quickly, trying to get back to the one you're actually interested in. But if that happens, it sort of kills the book. So I was, I really didn't want that to happen, and it was happening to me in the early days. The Laura chapters were a struggle, and I think I wrote at least three fully formed, like heavily edited versions of those that are totally different from each other. And it was only right at the very end that it sort of started to come together and I realized, no, no, okay, this is beginning to get where it needs to be. Um, The hard thing was because without giving anything away, those diary entries have to work on a lot of different levels um, and making sure that that was happening and that I was being fair to the reader was really important. Well, Dervla, I can see in your bibliography that if you published your first book in 2018 and this is your fourth book in 2022, that it would look like you're cranking out a book a year, but I'm going to guess it takes you a lot longer. For one thing, I know you didn't start writing a book until 2014. What was the process, and what made you decide you wanted to try to do this? To write generally? Yeah. Well, you know, I had loved books. Like, who doesn't? I mean, they've been a huge part of my life since I was very small, but I'd never tried seriously to write because... The way I was brought up was very much about, look, you choose a responsible path, you get a job that can pay your bills, you know, that's how life works. And something like writing, well, that's for other people. And I, you know, my parents meant very well by that. They, they, you know, when they were young, they had to work awfully hard to establish themselves. They know how hard the world can be and they wanted me to be safe. And so I never considered writing as a serious, as something that I could do. It just, it was for other people, you know, Um And then, you know, I was a lawyer for a long time. I set up a little practice in the west of Ireland and then the economic crash came and and hit it really hard. And to cut a very long story short, we kind of lost everything. And so my husband and I had to start again and we moved to Australia. And in the starting again, though, we sort of became free because we had done everything responsible. You know, we had followed the path that had been set and we'd ticked all of the boxes and it just didn't work out for us. And so we just said, well, okay, we, maybe we get to live life our way this time and we'll give it a go and maybe we've got just as much chance of that working out as the other. And so I started writing and, you know, I was working during the day but um, with the kids in the afternoon, but I was writing at night and I, I said, right, I'm going to give myself five years because if I was going to try to do any kind of career change, it would take that long. So I'll give it at least five years. I'll write every night um, and we'll see where we go. And 
that I started doing that seriously in 2014. I signed my first contract with HarperCollins in Australia in October 2016. The first book came out in February 2018 and made it into the top 10, which was like, oh, I can't believe this has happened. But then the next book was 2019 and made it into the top five. And then the last of the series in 2020 um, made it all the way to number one. So I've had, like I've been so lucky, we've had some hard times in our lives as most of us have had, but I've also had some enormous good fortune. And I mean, I, I write because I love to write and because there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Even if I wasn't being published, I'd still be writing. Being published is just the the wonderful icing on top. And as that third book was going to the top of the Australian charts, is that around the time that uh, a gentleman named Shane Salerno called you up on the phone and said, Dervla, we need to talk? <laughs> It was it was it was a bit before that. In fairness, it was after the second book and before the third book came out. Yeah, we kind of got to know each other a little bit. I got to know um, uh, Shane Salerno is a, a fantastic agent who is based in LA and he represents Don Winslow. And I got to know Don a little bit over Twitter, um, which is how we kind of connected. And then through Don, I I ended up being connected with Shane, and he just called me up one Sunday when I was in Perth you know, wrangling the kids out of their swimming lesson. I get this number on my phone with a Californian number on it, and I answer it, and it's Shane, and he wants to have a chat, and it was a it was a pretty big moment in my life. Did you hang up on him like Adrian McKinty did? <laughs> I most certainly did not. <laughs> Adrian's a braver man than me. No, I didn't. I, we had a really good conversation, though, um, about where we wanted to go and, and where things were, and we... Um, you know, it's a big decision. I did have an agent at the time. It was a tricky thing to figure out. And we, I was at a strange point in my career anyway. So we thought, well, you know what, maybe it's not the right time for us. We'll have a chat again another time. And then a couple of days later, we ended up talking again. And, you know, he said he'd been thinking about it since. And we really didn't want to miss this time. It felt like the right time to change things up. And it felt like the right time for me as well. And it was just too good an opportunity. I'm, I'm so happy to be working with him because he... he um, He's made some amazing things happen already. Well, as you know, Dervla, um, Adrian McKinty was having a hard time when Don Winslow gave the news to, to Shane that uh, he needed to call up Adrian. And, and um, <laughs> I mean, Don is such an advocate for other writers. I just had him on the show again just the other day, and I'm hoping to have Adrian yeah. on again here for his new book this month. But But Don is just such an advocate and if he believes in a writer, he'll go that extra mile. And the fact that you met on Twitter, that kind of blows me away. I know. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> I think I think the first thing that happened was in the early days with The Ruin, I was talking. You know, they do these little, your publisher does these little video interviews with you and they put them online. And mm. one of the things I was asked in those was, you know, what, what have you been reading this year? And I'm embarrassed to admit this, but the very first of Don Winslow's books that I read was The Force. Uh-huh. I was just wandering in the bookshop, picked it up, started reading it. I was completely and utterly blown away by it, you know. Um, and I started talking about it in every interview I did that year. I think I was talking about the force. Whenever everybody asks you, you know, what are you reading right now? Um, and he just, he'd obviously been tagged in some of those posts by the publisher and he just reached out and thanked me. And then later he read an article about me and, and some of the things that happened in my life. And he just reached out again and was very kind and encouraging. And then he read one of my books. And he's just been amazing. I mean, he's just a very special person. I think he's an extraordinary talent, first first of all. But secondly, 
he's so generous, as you said, and how he supports other risers. I agree, and he's uh, he's decided he's going to retire. He he was holding out on me when I talked to him the other day. He didn't tell me that he'd already written these other two books, and, and he was he was wrapping it up. He did, he he saved that for the big uh, television network, but. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I heard that. I, he did. I asked him. I said, "What are you going to do after you? Since you've already written these other two books in this trilogy?" He says, "Oh, I'm going to watch TV, take surf, take naps, surf." Uh, and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> but he didn't actually come out and say, no. I'm, "And I'm not writing books anymore." No, I just think it's a tragedy. I'm really hoping. I, I've got a theory, which is that, you know, for a man who is as disciplined as he is and has been writing as much as he is, he's probably exhausted. But I suspect with a little bit of time off, I think he might just get, I don't know, I'm, I mean, I could be wishful thinking. I'm, I, I hope he's going to get the itch to write again, because I think it would be so sad if we have no more Don Winslow books to read. Well, at least Lee Child kind of had a transition period. I don't know if he's still going to keep writing with his brother or if he's actually ready to, to just hand it off, but... They get there at a certain age. These guys, when you get to a certain age, why not retire? I mean, I suppose you know they they've got enough money. Well, they have, and they've written so hard and written so much. But I just, I don't know. I think I can't imagine not writing, you know. And I know I haven't been doing it anywhere near as long as these guys, or had the same level of success. But I, I just can't imagine not having writing in my life. It's just such a fundamental part of the day. But. Uh-huh. I get it. I get the need to take a break. I get the need to kind of walk away. And I think, too, I mean, I get the impression Don is very driven by his political activism. You know, that's a large part of why Mm -hmm. maybe he feels that needs his attention and his time now Mm -hmm. um, more than his writing. Okay. What are you reading? (laughs) What am I reading right now? Oh, my God. Well, what I bought, but I haven't started yet, is the new Susan Cain book called Bittersweet, which is nonfiction. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and I'm looking forward to that because I loved her book, Quiet. I also bought a book in a bookshop the other day, um, which is from the Mystery Writers Association, a kind of a curated book about how to write mysteries. <laughs> there's oh, uh-huh. some good tips in there. And I just finished a novel um, by Solari Gento called The Body, no, The Woman in the Library, which I think is coming out soon. And it is so fun, Vic, if you come across it. Like it's it's set in Boston Public Library. Are these three strangers just working at a table when uh, there's a woman a woman screams and they um and a band together and do this amateur investigation and it's just a clever sharply funny book really self aware um, and it's just such a a treat to read so I would highly recommend that if you come across it. What did you used to read when you you were younger? What kind of stuff did you read when you were a kid? Ooh, when I was a kid in my teens and my early teens um my you know, we weren't a huge bookish house, but my brothers, my older brothers read a lot and they read mostly science fiction and fantasy. So I read mostly science fiction and fantasy, but my taste definitely leaned towards fantasy. So most of my teens and 20s, I read a lot of fantasy. And then I um, somehow discovered sort of in my 20s, I was coming home from the bookshop more often than not with crime fiction. And that was just what was sort of catching my attention and where I was finding the kind of books I wanted to read. But in my early days, it was all fantasy. I used to love it so much, all the David Eddings books and um, the Dragonlance books, which were based on a role-playing game, I think. But my God, they were so good. Um, I used to disappear into those for hours on end. Well, I love it when I get an opportunity to speak to writers who are from Ireland originally and... um, 
Some of them, of course, still live there. I, I had Maeve Benchy on the show once. Uh, she actually came here. She was actually in the studio with her husband, and she was wild. Oh, my God. I would love to have met her. Yeah, she what was, was something. She like? Oh, she was very jolly. I think she'd had a little wine with lunch before she came over. Very jolly. And she hadn't been able to travel because of her health for a long time, so it was the first time she was in the States for years, and she was really having a good time. And But one of my favorites of, of all time was Nula Ofuelan. Oh, really? You interviewed Nula? Several times. She was wonderful. Was she? In what way was she wonderful? Oh, just so re- so genuine, so real. Yeah. Yeah. You could you could yeah. feel the pain. Oh, it's just uh, such a powerful experience to talk to her. That's what you're. I'm kind of jealous of your job. You seem like you've met some really interesting people. Well, I've never met Tana French, but I've talked to her on the phone a couple of times. But she's not really Irish, is she? Well, I don't know. She is one of my idols. I just think she's such a fabulous writer. And um, I've never met her, but I'd love to. But I think she lives a pretty low-profile life, doesn't she? I think so. And they're calling your book a psychological thriller, which is kind of her territory in a way. Yeah, I guess it is. It's funny. I I never think about it as a psychological thriller. More, but but then again, I don't know what that is exactly. I don't either. I always think. <laughs> What were you going to say, Vic? I didn't catch that. I, I don't either. They they always have to to uh, pigeonhole books. Yeah, and, and I don't get it, but I do get it. I mean, I understand that they're what they're trying to do is put it on a bookshelf so people can find the books they want, and I know that you know that makes sense. But I always think of Stephen King because I think Stephen just writes what he wants to write when uh, he wants to write it, and then people will put whatever badge on it they want to. And I I my theory is the reason he's so amazingly creative. Um, is that he doesn't feel constrained in any way by those labels. He just writes whatever the heck he is in his mind on that given day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I see this is, we, this is your first book on William Morrow. I'm going to guess that you have a multiple book contract? I do, three book contract. Okay. Are you working on the second book? I am. It's well underway at this stage or I'll be in big trouble. <laughs> and is it bad luck to talk about it? It's probably a little early, but uh-huh. um, it's it's coming along. It's just got a little bit of a ways to go. Um, it's about a young couple. Well, actually, you know what? I might get in trouble. Maybe it's too soon okay. to talk about All it. Right. I'm not sure if I'm allowed. Can we talk about the murder rule? Is this uh, being adapted for any other purposes? It has. It has been optioned by FX for a limited series, which I'm super excited about. And... Um, they've already started working on it. They're writers. I, I got some notes from a writers' meeting, which was really cool to see their take on the characters and where they see it going. And uh, you know, it's just very exciting that that a company like like FX want to adapt it because they're so known for really good dramas. So mm-hmm. it's very exciting for me. And right now, I know you're in Los Angeles. I don't know when you oh. arrive there. I know you're you're jetting around the country. Are are you having lunch with Shane today? I'm hoping to see him this evening. At, I'm doing an event in uh, Dromans. Oh, um, nice. This evening, which will be really fun. And I'm hoping to see him there. But um, he has a few things on so with his family. So it depends on how that all works out. So hopefully we'll catch up with each other there. That's a fabulous bookstore. I've never been, but I've seen photographs. I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to checking it out. And I'm sure Don would come over to see you, except that guy's on some crazy tour right now. He's on a crazy tour, but I get to interview him in New York this Thursday at the Center for Fiction. So I'm going to see him in person, and I can't wait. We saw each other on a 
Zoom um, event last week for Australia. His book came out a little bit earlier in Australia and we did that together. Um, but I've never met him. Actually, I did bump into face-to-face at Harrogate at a writers' festival a couple of years ago, but only briefly, and we didn't really know each other then. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing him in person. If slightly intimidated about the interview, I'm going to listen to your interview with him now, Vic, and pick and steal all your questions. <laughs> I, I would not recommend that. <laughs> Is that a good idea? No. Well, Dervla, it's so good to talk to you. I, I'm so pleased that uh, you're, you're doing so well and you're enjoying all this, and I love your book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jake. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. My guest has been Dervla McTiernan. The book is The Murder Rule. You heard about it on the Book Nook on WYSO, sharing community voices through inspired storytelling. For the Book Nook, I'm Vic McCunis. <laughs>